Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Evil Side of Artistic. Under the banner of artistry, all sorts of deception can take place. The foundation of the truth, which according to Christ is, <clears throat> himself, is being challenged, redefined, and warped in order to fit the postmodern preferences and sensibilities. Here's my stance. Jesus isn't the one that bends. We humans are the ones who will all bend our knee before his all preeminent lordship. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This particular message ranks up there amongst the top one, two, or three of the most difficult messages I've ever put together. I would have never thought of making this an introductory message for those of you that are arriving for nine weeks. This is a message that would typically be better suited for an Ellerslie session and not a church session. It's a little more difficult. It's a little, I don't want to say academic because it's not what it is. It is an important message for the Church of Jesus Christ today. Some of the things I'm going to be addressing are at the very center of the battle. However, to deal with them is extremely difficult. What I'm going to try and put my finger on today and address in our souls and in this culture around us is very hard to articulate. It is, and I've spent weeks laboring on this message. I was going to give this last week, and God gave me an extra week, obviously. I was in a snowstorm. I couldn't make it to Sunday service. And so it ended up being this morning that this message is coming out, and this past week has been very critical in the development of this message. So I want to pray, and I want to ask God for a special grace for me to be able to articulate this in a simple way so it doesn't get too lofty. That's my entire desire in this, is that it would come down to the level of tire tread in our life, and it can be applicable and powerful. Precious King Jesus, Almighty Father, we need the governing grace of the Spirit of God this morning to lead us into all truth. I pray that the words that are chosen would be your words and they would not be barnacled with the weakness of humanity. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give grace into this message and power into this message to pierce our hearts, to sink deeply into our lives. And Lord Jesus, that I would somehow be able to get out of the way and allow you to communicate your truth. Please, Lord Jesus, illuminate this to us. Set us free from this trap and this danger and this bait that is before us. It's in the great, almighty name of King Jesus we pray. Amen. The evil side of artistic. Leslie said to me, it was, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, uh, Leslie, Annie, and I were in a meeting, and we were struggling with this exact issue, and the the impact it's having on the Christian world around us. It's the artistic. Now, you're going to find out I'm not against artistic. However, there is a, a presence in our culture today, and I'm going to use a word here, but don't get intimidated by it. The word is postmodern, postmodernism. Okay? Don't get intimidated by it. I'm not one that just likes to use big words to sound intelligent. Postmodernism, here, I'm going to give you a very interesting definition for it. It's when you begin to celebrate art above truth. It is a removal of truth as our moorings, and we begin to move more in the emotional, in the feelings, in the sensory dimensions, instead of on rock. And when you do that, you lose rock. 
When you put anything above Jesus, anything above rock, anything above truth, you end up undermining the truth itself. Now that's one thing. I'd say our culture is postmodern, which it is. It's become postmodern. Okay, again, don't get intimidated by the term. What happens if the church begins to do that? Welcome to modern-day Christianity and this message. The evil side of artistic. First, the case for the godly artist. In other words, my goal is not to undermine the artistry of God. God, get this, is an artist. I know it sounds strange. It might be more appropriate to call him creator because it's a higher level term than just minimizing him down to an artist. But he's an artist in his creation, okay? And, as I will show you in the Bible, the Spirit of God labors in the artistic. In other words, the Spirit of God is revealed in Scripture as moving upon people and expressing, strange as this sounds, art. So let's read this. In Exodus 35 through uh, chapter 36, uh, verse 1. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God. By the way, it's not an accident that this man is from the tribe of Judah, because this is a foreshadow. This is called a Christophany, a picture of Christ in the Old Testament, even though it's not as obvious to most people. But he's of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God. So this man, Bezalel, is filled with the Spirit of God. In wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels for setting and carving wood and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. I didn't write that. That's the word of God expressed. The spirit of God is working through him in the artistic. Okay, so I want to lay a foundation. I'm not trying to attack artistry, beauty. And he has put in his heart the ability to teach in him in Holiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weaver, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. And Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan, see the word art in the front of artisan? That's what they are. They're an artist. An artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. So it's the Spirit of God that has filled these men, the artisans, Bezalel and Aholiab, and the other artisans of Israel. Why? This is very interesting. To build the sanctuary, to adorn and furnish the sanctuary of God. You know what the sanctuary of God is? It's the temple of God. Now this is... when they were still in the desert season, the wilderness, and so it was called the sanctuary of the tabernacle. It's the dwelling place of God. In the New Testament, do you know how that's translated? The temple of God to us as Christians. Do you know who the temple of God is? It's the church of Jesus Christ. We are seeing, one, an artist from the tribe of Judah that is filled with the Spirit to build the temple. Jesus in the New Testament says, tear down this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Who is the one that has adorned the temple? Who is the, who is the carpenter of Judah? It's Jesus! And so what we see, the artist from Judah, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have this foreshadow of a carpenter, an artist, an artisan who is filled with the Spirit and who will build the temple of God. 
Who is it that lives inside of you? When you are a Christian, you enter in to Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And when we enter into Christ Jesus, as we will walk through this semester in great detail, that is the means through which that very same spirit that filled Bezalel and Aholiab enters us and works the works of God. Now, some of you may not consider yourselves artists, but I want you to realize the spirit that works within you is artistic in that manner, to bring glory to God the Father. Okay, now, I laid the foundation so none of you can accuse me that I'm against art. But now I want to go directly at the jugular on this one. And I want to talk about the fact that art in our world has been perverted. It has been distorted. It has been captured by the enemy camp, and they are attempting to wield it to the expulsion, to the destruction of truth itself. The thing about art is it's, catch this word, it's a very important word today, subtle. It is subtle in how it works, which means it's not obvious. It makes a message, but not a clear message. It's a, it's a fuzzy message. And it's purposely fuzzy because it has an agenda and it doesn't want you to see its true agenda. And so it's subtle in how it undermines. And I want you to realize subtlety in craft is an attribute associated with someone who is opposite Jesus Christ and who is antagonistic to the kingdom of heaven. A deviant artistry, which means perverted, a artistry gone bad. A look into the perversion of the notion of artistic. Oh, Eric, the artist. Being likable and attractive to the culture is the Christian's highest aim. Okay, now I'm going to go through a brief overview, and I won't spend much time on this, but everything I'm about to talk to you about, I have fallen for at some degree, okay? Now, I could plead innocence and say, but it wasn't as bad as them. Yeah, that might be true. We could all say that. However, that isn't what you plead before the judgment seat in the end. Yeah, but I wasn't as bad as Hitler. That doesn't go. Your plea at the, at the judgment seat is, he did the work and I am clothed in his righteousness. It's not something I have done or not done. Eric the artist, being likable and attractive to the culture is the Christian's highest aim. Think about this. How many of us have even heard this and have thought this? We need to present Christianity in a better way. I mean, this is so bulky and awkward. Now, here's the truth in it. Christianity has gone south. Christianity isn't looking too hot. But why? Because it's dead. Not because Christianity itself needs to be altered. Christianity needs to be rediscovered. Because we need the life of Christ to infuse it afresh. We need holiness and purity to return to the body of Christ. We need to be after Jesus, not after just trying to look like Jesus in our own strength. There's all sorts of problems with the generation we've grown up in, but the problem isn't truth itself. But here's the pitch. You know, the church isn't working today. We need to doll it up a little. We need to make it look a little better. We need to spritz it up. It has this calyx sitting out there. It has buck teeth. We need to fix it. And so what is the proposal? Well, we need to sort of cover up the harsher elements of the gospel. You know, those things don't make a good pitch. No one's going to want Christianity if they hear that. And we might need to change some of these things. What you're about to hear in this message is shocking. And what I'm about to share with you is literally the leading voices in Christianity today. For he hath 
He shall grow up before him as a tender plant. This is speaking of Jesus. And as a root out of a, out of a dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. Comeliness is a word for beauty. He has no form or comeliness. This is speaking of Jesus. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now that can be a little confusing. It's like, are you calling my Jesus uh, comely and you know, unattractive? Not necessarily. That's not necessarily the conclusion you come to through this. To the saints of God, he's, he's the most beautiful thing. He's the fairest of all fair ones. To the world system, there is no form or comeliness that we would find him beautiful. None. Jesus was crucified. He wasn't found beautiful and attractive and everyone ran up to him and gave him a hug. He was expunged from the culture. Christianity by nature, the very spirit of God when it enters this hostile territory is not attractive. You need to get used to that in your Christianity because who is working within you is antagonistic to the systems of this world. And the systems of this world love darkness more than light. Eric the communicator. Avoid certainty or preachiness at all costs. I taught communications, and not just communications, advanced level communications. And I would teach people how to dexterously and deftly take the truth and apply it into a culture. Now you have to realize, what I'm about to go into, I am guilty of. What I used to teach as I was preparing this message, I was shamefaced. Because there are certain things I teach. I don't teach them anymore. Okay, but as I was looking back, it's like, that's, that's actually what I taught. I was reading Brian McLaren on preaching. And I tell you what, he might have been quoting from one of my old classes. And that's scary for me. But some of the things I used to teach, you see, you don't want to ever come across as certain about anything. Now, this is Eric in the past. Believe me, I could see this getting edited out and set on uh, YouTube or something. <laughs> Basically, what I would say is you can't just be certain about anything uh, to your audience. Because if your audience senses that you're coming across as established in something, they'll feel offended. Because no one can, no one really wants someone to preach at them. They want someone to appeal to them, to enter into a conversation with them, to say, hey, let's just discuss this. That's effective communication. Everyone knows it in a postmodern culture. It's artistic, it's favorable, it's pleasant. We want to be pleasant, we want to smell good. Preaching, by definition, doesn't smell good. It's foolish. God defines it as such. And it's his delight to use it. See, we don't like this. That goes against our entire framework. We want to be attractive. We want to smell good. Why wouldn't God want us to smell good? It's not that he's trying to make you ugly. You're beautiful to him. He's making you truly beautiful. But the world doesn't have the same taste buds. And when you try and gauge truth to fit the world's taste buds, you compromise truth. Certainty is a negative thing. And we're going to go into that. Rock. And if you come across and say, this is truth, well, to you it is. You can't force your truth upon me. We're not allowed to be certain anymore. You know what faith is based upon? Rock-like certainty. The word of God has to be the word of God. The word of God has to be uh, infallible. The word of God has to be trustworthy. If it's not, we have nothing to stand on. And that's what's happened to the church of Jesus Christ. We don't have anything to stand on anymore. So here's just a, 
a little crash course in understanding when we say, no, 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 you can't be preachy. You can't be certain about anything. You need to come across and appeal to them because you don't want to make Christianity foolish. 1 Corinthians 1.17. This is all out of 1 Corinthians, so that's why you don't see any more 1 Corinthians. This is 1.18, 1.21, 1 Corinthians 1.17. For Christ sent me, this is Paul speaking, to preach the gospel. Not to attempt to fit the gospel into culture in an artistic way. To preach it, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. What do you do with that scripture? And then here we have 118. He just keeps going. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Hey, guys, I know it's foolish. The point isn't to try and look good and smell good. It's to bring what they need. If God assigns the church of Jesus Christ to deliver the goods of the gospel in a certain way, don't you think we should trust him instead of our human sensibilities? Do you think this is the way Paul was naturally wired? Of course not. He had to literally shift kingdoms and begin to think from a different angle and a different vantage point. Here we are in 1 Corinthians 1.21. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. Paul knows it's foolish. God knows it's foolish. But it pleased God that by this method of foolishness to save them that believe. 123, we preach Christ crucified. Yeah, and guess what? That's a stumbling block. And it's foolishness. That's a stumbling block uh, to the Jew and foolishness to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block and foolishness. What kind of method is that? Could you imagine me as a communicating coach? I'm like trying to teach you how to win an election. I'm like, here's my advice for you. Preach the cross of Christ. Well, I'm going to make sure the guy certainly doesn't get elected with that model. And every one of us knows it. You have to be a little more, get this word, subtle. Okay, this is our challenge. And this is where this message comes in. How does Christianity take on a culture? Idiotes. Now, you'll, you'll learn this message, uh, this, or this word. This is a Greek word. Uh, this is what it means. Seemingly unlearned, appearing unskilled and lacking intelligence. How many of you want to be idiotes? And you see the word idiot mixed in there. It's like, yeah, God, can I have a little more idiotes in me? No, 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 that's not what we're after. However, Paul, listen to this scripture. But though I be idiotes in speech... Could you imagine me using that as my guiding principle for communicating uh, and teaching advanced communications? Let's, let's follow the Paul model here, guys. Uh, but though I be idiotes in speech, if we could learn to be a little more, un, we could seem to be a little more unlearned and appearing unskilled and lacking intelligence before our audience, I think would be a lot more effective. This flies in the face of everything we're wired for. However, you know that Paul was not unlearned? He was not unskilled and he did not lack in intelligence, but he appeared the fool because of what he stood for. What he stood for was Christ and him crucified. Eric, the postmodern Christian. I almost want to just go up to the screen and tear down the screen. I can't even stand seeing my name associated with that. I am so opposite of everything in this message now. However, there were shades of this in me, I actually was a part of a church called The Journey for, I don't know what it was, uh, like a year of my life. And I remember the, the pastor, he was doing this little church plant. We met in a living room, and he said, here's my vision, Eric. And I was like, that's exactly. He's like, you know, people are trying to reach, you know, the culture through preaching and, you know, this hardline fundamentalist thing. And it's not that I agreed with the fact that truth should be diminished. However, what he said was, what we need to use is the mediums of the culture. 
If we could use the mediums of the culture and then take in the subtlety of truth and begin to acquaint people with it, that's a better means to get them to Jesus. And I'm like, you know what? That just makes sense. Aren't you, you know, scared for Eric Ludi here? You're like, are you serious, Eric? You thought that? So did you! I'm not the only one! This works! And in our mind, it actually makes sense. But I want you to realize it's anti-biblical. It's not Christian. It's not the method of Jesus or of Paul or the church triumphant throughout the ages. We do not pander after their good opinion. Who are we doing this for? His good opinion. When he says, do it this way, we say, yes, Lord. Though we be fools. The great aim of the Christian evangelist, now this is the mentality of the postmodern, okay? This is Eric's thinking at a certain level. I don't want to just sell Eric down the river, you know, and make it sound like I was postmodern. I had a hint of it. I adopted it from my culture around me. It's just amazing how it infiltrates our thinking. The great aim of the Christian evangelist is to find ways to take the culture, movies, music, and literature, and make it the vehicle through which to engage the non-Christian with the ideas of Jesus. The shack, for instance. Artistic, redefines the entire nature of God. The artistry is lifted up above truth, and as a result, the truth is lost. And everyone's so moved by the artistry and the beauty and the love. And it's a bunch of schlock, is what it is. It's not truth. You cannot sell truth down the river to try and convince people that they now have God. The end goal is not to just get them to assent towards some God concept. It's to acquaint them with Jesus Christ and him crucified. Eric, the one refusing to be foolish. Yeah, some of my early discussions with God. Now, God's really pushed on this point. God, I'll, I'll follow you and I'll stand for you. And I'll give my whole heart into it. But could you protect my reputation in this. Could you not make me one of those guys? You know, that's all wild-haired. Because if I let my hair go, you should see it. After I uh, wash my hair, if I just put a towel on it, it goes. I have to, like, get these curls to sort of mat down up here. Uh, And so I could look a little John the Baptist-y without much problem, Okay. And so there's this fear that God would make me John the baptist And ironically, some of you are thinking, uh, don't you realize, I hate to break this to you, Eric, but you are. That's because I've sort of moved past this ridiculousness. I honestly, I'm not pandering after your opinion. I just want to bring truth, and I want to do it out of love. You'll notice the more you hang around me, I love you, I really do, and I want you to be free from this junk so that you can serve Jesus the way he ought to be served. We can bring glory to Jesus Christ. So, Eric, the one refusing to be foolish. No, God, I'll serve you, but not that way. No way. You can never ask me to speak on that. No, no, never ask me to do that. The motto, somehow make this awkward thing known as Christianity cool. That's the great agenda of modern Christianity. If we could just make it palatable. If we could just make it attractive, let's all band together. Hmm, 1 Corinthians 4.10. We are fools for Christ's sake. For whose sake? Christ's sake. Why do we do this? For him. 
Christ crucified. It's known as a stumbling block and foolishness. The gospel, it's called the foolishness of God. The things of the spirit of God, they are foolishness to natural man. Preaching, called foolishness. The preacher, Paul was called weak, contemptible, unskilled, a.k.a. foolish. We're going to accept this or we're going to fight this? Do we want Christianity on God's terms or our terms? Paul, his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. <laughs> uh, you know, that's not my impression of Paul. And we sort of cover these things up. But that's the way Paul appeared. And he was willing to do it. He was willing to make it the power of God that demonstrated the fact that his message was authentic instead of his brilliance. And guess what? The man was brilliant. He had plenty of things to justify him in the natural realm, and he considered them all dung. He said, I will be justified God's way, not man's way. The exaltation of artistic above Jesus. Now, as I go through this, I just want you to realize, allow God to convict you. Don't fight it. Don't make this some battleground. I know that's sort of hard to say. It's easier said than done. But some of you are artists in here. And I want you to realize that's wonderful. I'm not against artistry. In fact, we have some of the most talented artists possibly anywhere in Christianity in this room. We have some great talent in this room. It's not the, the opposite is true. We should forsake talent and be, you know, without it. It's that when we have exalted artistic above Jesus, we are part of the problem instead of the solution. The postmodern message is, oh, this is from one, First Emergent 2.2. It's not in the real Bible, by the way. <laughs> I come to you, dear brothers and sisters, certain of absolutely nothing. <laughs> but I do have a hug to offer, a lotus position to stick you in, some poetry from Gerard, Gerard Manley Hopkins to recite, and some soft New Age music playing in the background. <laughs> I'm dead serious. That's how bad it's getting. Oh, they have uh, some labyrinths that they can walk through uh, as well. Uh, but uh, they get into you know, yoga positions during their services. And what are we doing? It doesn't matter if it's not in the Bible. This works. This draws people in. It's sensitive to the Buddhists out there. Why, why are we trying to be sensitive to the Buddhists? Why don't we rescue the Buddhists? They need truth. The Apostle Paul's message. Just contrast this. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. You're going to notice that Ellerslie is willing to sound unintellectual, if necessary. We're about one thing here, and you just read it. We're about Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we ever give any message that doesn't lead you to Jesus Christ and a greater understanding of that cross, then we have failed you. That doesn't mean every message has to say some in-depth information about the cross of Jesus Christ, but I want you to realize... When you understand Jesus and him crucified, you understand everything else. It's the key that unlocks the entire Bible. It's the centerpiece of everything the Old Testament is leading to. And it's everything that the New Testament flows out of. You do not have power to live your Christian life. You do not have resurrection life. You do not have the impartation of the Spirit of God in your life unless we have this. This is everything to the Christian. And Paul is willing to forsake every other discussion point, every other doctrinal nuance to say this is where I stand. The artistic haven, the modern means of experiencing God. This is, this is one of the hardest things I was trying to articulate. 
There's a high desire for us to experience God in our generation. There's a high swing towards what we could call the mystical. It's not all bad because experiencing God and knowing God intimately is one of the most important attributes of New Testament Christianity. However, this is putting a desire on experience above a desire for truth. And when you outweigh truth with this concept of experience, you find yourself selling truth down the river to get any experience. Experience is not what guides us as Christians. Truth is. And God's word is truth. If anything we're doing violates God's word, something's wrong with what we're doing. So this artistic haven. Let's see. I'll just move forward and see if I can articulate this. This is a hard one. The postmodern Christian needs an artistic haven in which to encounter God. If they don't have an artistic haven, I'm going to describe what I mean by that. Haven sort of meaning an atmosphere or a covering or a house. If they don't have an artistic haven, then they can't experience God. They need help. They need a crutch of some kind to experience God. They can't just be in the dank, dark prison cell and have God. They need to have it smell a certain way, a little incense in the air. There's certain things that help. Sure, there's certain things that help. Just like this atmosphere we have at Ellerslie. That helps. But Ellerslie's atmosphere shouldn't be placed above Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is what you need. Outside of the artistic haven, God is dull and lifeless and completely unexciting. So let's look at a few classic artistic havens. Movies. Movies speak to my soul, we say. The Bible just doesn't. The Bible's sort of dull. It, you know, it, it's not very exciting, whereas a movie, it just exhilarates me. And so guess what? We trade in the word of God for this understanding of like, well, I search God in and through the movies. You know how many Christians do this? It's just like, well, you know, I see God in the Matrix. I see God in Spider-Man 3. Now, this is giving away something from our, our, our semester, but just imagine that I trucked in a pile of manure and stuck it down on the stage here. How many of you would be happy with me? Well, yeah, it'd be sort of awkward to raise your hand and say, yeah, Eric, I'm happy with that. <laughs> It stinks, and all of you are like, uh, that doesn't belong in here. You're right. It doesn't fit in here, does it? But what if I said, hey, guys, I know that this stinks, but look at this. I roll up my sleeve, stick my hand in the manure, and pull out a nickel. And I say, there is a nickel of truth in this manure. Does that justify me trucking in the manure? We keep the manure out of Christianity. You don't need Hollywood. You don't need this world system to help you find Jesus Christ. You have the means to seek Jesus Christ. We do not go to an artistic haven, but that's what we've begun to do. And that's why most pastors are doing sin evangelism, which is the concept of cinema evangelism, Hollywood evangelism. Hollywood producers will write up scripts, literally send out teachings to pastors all over the country for how their movies can reveal truth. These guys don't even know Christ. But they know pastors are desperate for good material and to keep their congregation around. We're selling truth. Out for a, you know, 31 uh, pieces of silver. Music. If I don't have music playing, I can't focus. I can't think straight. I can't engage with God. Mm. There's a few of us that have actually had that quote on our lips. Have to have our music. It has to be there somewhere. It's an artistic haven. We have some dependence outside of Jesus Christ. One of the best things that you can go through is a season of stillness. 
Quiet your soul. No more noise. You need to learn to find Jesus Christ without any other dependency. Poetry. Without some lyricism, things of God just don't excite me. Location. I'm only inspired when I'm in Paris. (laughs) How many artists have said that? Atmosphere. I can only work in an artistic coffee shop. I can only pray in stained glass cathedrals. Community. I only feel alive while I'm in community of like-minded artists seeking mystery. It's one of the most common statements amongst the emergent church. We're not seeking Christ. We're seeking mystery. It, It really spawns a creativity within me. These are artistic havens. I want you to realize the body of Christ is meant to be a sort of a haven. But it's a haven that drives us to Jesus. It constantly focuses on Jesus, not on itself as a means to find Jesus. It's a support system. Your friendships in Christianity here at Ellerslie are going to be a support uh, system. But you are being trained and groomed to find Jesus. Where you can walk into this world in the years to come. And leave all of this culture behind. And live fully, strongly, vibrantly, and triumphantly for Jesus Christ. The danger of the artistic haven. When artistry becomes the primary objective in the Christian life, in other words, to experience God in a movie, music, poetry, a certain location, a specific atmosphere, a defined community, then truth takes a lesser position than the artistic haven. When the artistic haven becomes the pursuit rather than Jesus Christ, then the erosion of truth is now justified under the pretense of artistic license. Art is of higher value than truth. And that is what I started this whole message, and I said, that is postmodernism. Art has been exalted over truth, and as a result, there's this license that is given to the church to say, yeah, it might not be biblical, but this is helping me go after God. Mm. Throwing off all traditional restraints. One of the number one things that's happening in Christianity is anything of tradition is being thrown overboard. Now, by the way, that actually can be a good process, too, because we have a lot of traditions in Christianity that aren't biblical. However, the moorings of Christianity throughout history could be considered traditional. In other words, just because they're old doesn't mean they're wrong either. And so what we don't want to do is throw off all the basic moorings of biblical framework so that we can now discover God. All that is hindering us. I'm an artist and I need freedom. And this is the great claim of the artist in our day, and the Christian artist, the postmodern artist. says he or she is free to explore Live out, think through, muse on, paint up, and poetically enunciate new ideas and new concepts without the dogged restraints of traditional bias and long-held biblical definition holding them back. I.e., the true artist, for example, that's what I.E. means, just in case for those of you that are out of the country and coming here. I.E., the true artist has escaped from the mom conscience. You know what the mom conscience is? Many of us have gone off to college with the mom conscience. My mom was like here. And I would go through and say, Eric... Now, I always told you not to look at that. Eric, I always told you to fold your clothes immediately after you take them out of the dryer. And so there's this mom conscience that follows us. Well, guess what? That's hindering my freedom. I left for college so I could be free. Get rid of this mom conscience. We don't want the mom conscience. However, what if the mom conscience is important to direct us? This is an indulgence. We're free to explore, live out, think through, muse upon What if you are musing upon lies? Hey, I need freedom to muse upon lies. What if you're looking upon pornography? I need freedom to enjoy it. I cannot be limited in my artistry by these 
ancient restraints. You know that this idea has come into the Christian world? What I'm about to read you as far as quotes from the leaders of Christianity, this is the decided view amongst postmodern Christians. So freedom is redefined. Freedom to the postmodern is being finally unshackled from the handcuffs of traditional understanding, no longer restrained by the moral requirements of mom, and no longer ashamed and convicted over what the Bible clearly enunciates as sin. I know that the Bible might say that that's sin. But for me, it's not. God values freedom over that sort of stuff. He set me free, didn't he, on the cross? I'm free in Christ Jesus, so therefore, I'm not limited by some moral restraint that, that way back 2,000 years ago they needed to hear. I'm free from that Bible. Is that what God was setting you free for? Well, you'll find out at Ellerslie the answer is no. God forbid, I think would be a Paul answer to that. So let's, let's look at this. Angsty is hip. You guys know what angsty is? Angst. It's like that smoldering look, you know, on the front of CD covers. The guy's like... <laughs> it has to be angsty. If you sit... Like, for instance, driver's license photos. What looks good on a driver's license photo? We all know it. I go in there and I go... They don't even know what to do with me. It's like, are you allowed to smile in a driver's license photo? You see, a big cheesy smile is cheesy. You know, you want to look angsty. You don't want to look happy. There needs to be a somber expression, a cool expression on your face. We know it. We live in the same culture. We know what comes across well. A big smile is not right. Angsty is hip. If I think a thought... No matter if the thought contradicts and challenges all the traditional moorings and moral building blocks of Judeo-Christian worldview, of a Judeo-Christian worldview, I should entertain the thought. I should speak forth the thought, paint it, put melody to it, sing it, write it, put it in prose or even sculpt it. This is the new definition of an artist today. If you think it, hey, you have the freedom and the license to indulge it. You want to, I want you to realize it's the opposite of the biblical model. If the thought comes in, you take it captive to the will of Christ Jesus. Only thoughts that bring glory to Jesus Christ are allowed to be tilled and turned over in this mind. That means that you have a sentry, a guard about your mind. And you can say, that's oppressive. That's repressive of my ability to be myself. You're not supposed to be yourself. You're supposed to be given to Jesus Christ and allow him to live his life in and through you. Welcome to Christianity. It's the exact opposite of Christianity. How about this one? Just Go with it. Go with it. You feel a little urge? Go with it. I want you to realize that is so opposite of everything you're going to learn in these next nine weeks. Stamp it out. Hit it in the teeth. That's what I'll tell you. Don't go with it. If I feel a feeling, a longing, or an urge, no matter if the feeling, longing, or urge, violates that which has been taught me as proper in the biblical framework, I should express it, yell it, indulge it, embrace it, and or cultivate it. Could, could you imagine a pastor actually teaching this? Huh. Self is central. What's this all about? Now, for most of us in here, we know the answer to that. It's about Jesus. Of course. Not to most of the church today. It's about you and your self-esteem. You need to feel good about yourself. God loves you. You need to feel good. You need to know how valuable you are. Well, guess what? You are valuable to God. Jesus does love you. But that's not the central. And when you put self central, the whole gospel goes south. It doesn't work. 
If I don't, this is the thought that goes with the postmodern Christian. If I don't let the thoughts, the feelings, longings, and urges out, well, I'm repressing my real true self. My real true self needs to have life and wings. And my real true self must get out. It must be known. It must be expressed. No, your real true self must die. Biblical freedom. So this is just a contrast. And you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. How do you find truth in Christianity? How do you find freedom in Christianity? Through truth. You see, we're trying to avoid the truth, and we call that freedom. When in actuality, it's exactly opposite. You face the truth. You give yourself to the truth, and what do you find? Freedom. You see, everyone's after freedom. Well, I have a secret for you. It's in Jesus. It's in his truth. It's not opposite his truth. It's not against his truth. We just somehow need to escape this truth to find freedom. That's what the world will tell you. And that's unfortunately what's crept into the church of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. This is uh, David in Psalm 119. And I will walk at liberty. Liberty. Freedom. I will walk at liberty, he says, for I seek your precepts. He's seeking God's commands, God's order to things. And when he seeks God's order to do it God's way, what does he find? Liberty. So we're wanting freedom and liberty as artists. I just told you how. You seek God's way. You'll find liberty. The wild conclusions of the postmodern Christian. For the sake of God, and under the, this is not me talking. I need to clarify this over and over again. I'm going back and forth between my thoughts, or to say what the Bible reveals, and this notion. For the sake of God, this is what they say, for the sake of God, they're doing this. For the sake of God and under the banner of love and freedom, let us cast off any moral restraint or archaic biblical mandate that would impede the arts. Why? Because arts are higher than truth. If it's impeding the arts, let's throw these things off for the sake of God and under the banner of love and truth. Throw off these moral restraints. God doesn't want them. He wants homosexuals to just be homosexuals. He wants them to be free. Instead, we have these archaic moral restraints that are hindering the artistic expression, the unique individuality of a soul. Flush it down the toilet. This thought does not find itself in Christianity. Hinder, or I say, throw off, let's cast off any moral restraint or archaic biblical mandate that would impede the arts, hinder authentic expressions of faith. And it's not just Christian faith, Buddhist faith, Islamic faith, Hindu faith. If it's impeding that, we don't want to oppress that with our narrow view of things. That is just out of a book written by, I mean, they were good men, but just men. How dare we take our biases and hinder these other religions? Dead serious. And block the voicing of self. How dare we do that to anyone? Self needs to be expressed. Let it out. The open mind versus the canon mind. The postmodern teaches something called the open mind. Now, I have an entire different message on this. I think it's the betrayed by a kiss that I go through the open mind. Actually, my book, The Bravehearted Gospel, goes through the open mind and the canon mind in quite... Great depth. This is very simple. The open mind versus the canon mind. See, what they say is, 
you don't want a closed mind and you don't want a narrow mind. And we say, I agree. So we need an open mind. It's just a door that's wide open. Anything the enemy wants to truck in, he can truck in, along with some God thoughts too. Hinduism has some good things to say. Mohammedism has some good things to say. Hinduism, good things to say. The new age is on to something. They're experiencing something. Let's find out about it. Throw off all restraint. Throw off all guard. There's liberty in Christ, is what they say. The open mind versus the canon mind. So the open mind, a.k.a. the artistic mind. The open mind craves mystery and disdains conciseness and concreteness. No, no. We celebrate mystery. If anything gets defined, oh, that's, that's that old modernistic thinking. It has turned off all filtering restraint and thusly is willing to explore new and previously forbidden ideas and cultivate thoughts that otherwise would be deemed false and dangerous. It's willing to challenge the age-old biblical ideas and pose the question. Listen to this question. Is that really what God said? Does that sound familiar? The canon mind. The canon mind is a mind given wholly to God, implicitly trusting God's definition of reality, exclusively devoted to God's opinion and command. By the way, for those of you that haven't been trained at Ellis, you might not understand the word canon, but that's the 66 books of the Bible. They have divine right and authority to rule the church of God. They are Jesus in text, basically. They're a king in the church of Jesus Christ. And so a canon mind is not a closed mind. It's not a narrow mind. It's a mind that is controlled by the Bible. And whatever the Bible says, that's what we think. And that's what we believe. Anything that opposes the Bible, we kick it out. We take it captive to the will of Christ Jesus, which is the canon. So the canon mind is given wholly to God, implicitly trusting God's definition of reality, exclusively devoted to God's opinion and command. Closed. Did you see what that said? Closed. Doesn't that sound horrible? You're not allowed to have a closed mind today. You know what? You're supposed to have a closed mind to anything outside of the word of God. Anything that opposes our Jesus, close off to it. Why would you open up to it? Could you imagine? I have this band of Satanists that wants to enter my home. And I'm like, well, I'm supposed to have an open home, open door policy. No, you slam the door in the face. I'm not going to subject my kids and my home to an invasion from the outside that wants to destroy it? No. It doesn't mean I can't close the door behind me and go out and meet them on the front porch and have a nice discussion. But I'm not going to allow it to be trucked into my environment, sit on the couch and invade my children's thinking and their formation in their growth. The canon mind is a mind built on God's word as if it were in fact the word of God. The canon mind is built upon the rock-like conviction that God's word is the perfect revelation of fact. It cannot lie and is 100% truth. And the canon mind knows that God intends his word to be comprehended by his saints, understood by his saints, and lived out by his saints. The canon mind is not open to any thought, notion, or definition of reality that is not 100% concurrent with the revelation of God's word. So one more look at the open mind, and then we'll move on. It's willing to challenge the age-old biblical ideas that pose the question, is that really what God said? This is the number one question that has invaded the church of Jesus Christ today, and that is, are you sure this is what God meant? Can we really be sure that this Bible is even trustworthy? These, this is coming from pastors in the evangelical world. Are we certain that we can trust this? Wasn't this written by men? The crafty voice. Now, this is very interesting because you look at artistic, and there's this word that oftentimes is associated with artistic, and that's craft or crafty or arts and crafts. 
And so what you see here is the crafty voice calling into question the obvious truth, beckoning a more generous understanding of the clear command. Let me give you a quote. Did God really say that? Who said that? Where's that from? The serpent. Right back in the beginning of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, we have a character that emerges on the scene, and this is his message. He is constantly, from the very beginning, attempting to undermine the integrity and the trustworthiness of the Word of God. That is his bent, and that is his agenda. And that agenda is not allowed into the house of God. Not allowed. Now, the serpent was more subtle, hmm, which means cunning, shrewd, and crafty, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said... The age-old question posed in a million different satanic ways. Is that really what God said? Is that really what God meant? Are you sure you aren't bringing your Greco-Roman platonic thinking into your understanding of that text? And most of you are like, I don't know, maybe I am. <laughs> are you sure this was ever written by God? Wasn't this verse added years later? Hasn't there been a long dispute over this, that particular book's inclusion in the canon? Didn't some of the most reliable manuscripts not include that verse? But does that verse really match with Jesus' message of love and kindness? What would a loving God actually, why, would a loving God actually say that? Yes! And it doesn't defy the fact that he's love. You've redefined love. Don't redefine love by your culture's understanding. You define it by the word of God. Yes, he said that. And guess what? He's still love. That's an expression of his love. He's chastening those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. He means it. Bend your knee and obey it. Can truth really even be known? Do you really believe that God would limit himself to be defined by the parameters of such a small and decidedly human work of literature? Hath God said, King James, has God indeed said, New King James, did God really say, NIV, did God actually say, ESV, indeed has God said, NASB, did God say, RSV, is it true that God has said, Young's? <laughs> yes, he said it. He meant it, and he didn't stutter. Christians, we stand on it as rock, and we will not be moved. We have an erosion of Christianity in our generation, and I consider it the greatest privilege that we have been chosen to stand in such a time. Instead of bemoaning the fact, let's get excited. This is my hour. This is the hour God chose for me. Yeah! Truth has fallen in the streets. And you're alive to do something about it. Wouldn't it be sad if you were, you know, whether it's in the heavenly vantage point, I don't think it'd be sad from the heavenly vantage point. But if you could know that the time that we're in and you didn't have an ability to impact it. Imagine that you were just a bystander to reality and you could only see it, but you couldn't participate in it. Wouldn't that be depressing? But you have the privilege to engage in this battle. Sure, it may cost you your life, your reputation, everything else. But you can bring glory to Jesus. That's the privilege of the saints. We're not a bystander. We're engaged in the battle and have the privilege of holding the sword. I have a character named Lucifer, the same guy as the serpent, Satan. In our house, we call him the big meanie. Lucifer, you know what his name means? 
bringer of light. Isn't that interesting? Bringer of light. Light is knowledge. That's another way of looking at it in Scripture. And I want you to realize, this guy is good. He knows how to dupe you. And if you do not fix yourself to the Word of God, you too will be duped as Eve and Adam were. This is serious business. Because the enemy, he does the same thing in every generation, but he brings a new package to it. And in our generation, he has a good package. So he's the bringer of light, but this light is a false light. It's like the difference between the sun and an incandescent bulb. It's not that the incandescent bulb in our case, you know, like these bulbs are bad and evil, so I don't want to make that link. However, there's a difference between sunlight and that bulb. And so... What the enemy does is he tries to create darkness and then say, oh, but I can help you see. And he creates a false life. He's a bringer of life and illumination, but what is his illumination? Did God really say, you can be as God, self on the throne, instead of Jesus on the throne? If he can accomplish that switch, he's won. If he can keep Christians on the throne, Christianity has no power to impact the world. Satan wins. So if Christianity is suddenly now being defined by self-centricity and selfishness and self-esteem, we esteem us. What, what's Christianity supposed to be esteeming? Jesus. Jesus esteem. That's what we're seeking. Not to feel good about us, to feel good about him. It's all about him. But this is a false light that has a singular intention in its illumination, and that is to question the words of God. Did God really say? It's an illumination of an insidious nature. Speaking of Lucifer, you were anointed cherub who covers. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom. In other words, what you see here in the Bible, it says his wisdom is corrupted. It's not that he doesn't have wisdom, but it's a corrupted wisdom. The same wisdom that we tote around in the world. It's not that it's not wisdom. It's that it's a corrupted wisdom. Why? For the sake of your Splendor, self-exaltation, self in a position it was never meant to be. Lucifer in a position he was never meant to be. What happened? His wisdom was corrupted and it brought him into that position. What does he want to do to you? Corrupt your wisdom so that you too would exalt yourself. So a quick review. Here's how the lie goes. If I think a thought, no matter if the thought contradicts and challenges all traditional moorings and moral building blocks of Judeo-Christian worldview, I should entertain the thought. I should speak forth the thought, paint it, put melody to it, sing it, write it, put it in prose, and here even sculpt it. If I have a feeling, a longing, or an urge, no matter if the feeling, longing, or urge violates that which has been taught me as proper in the biblical framework, I should express it, yell it, indulge it, embrace it, and or cultivate it. And if I don't let the thoughts, the feelings, longings, and urges out, I am repressing my real true self. And my real true self must get out. And everyone's like, oh, poor you. It must get out. I'm with you. My real true self must get out. It must be known. It must be expressed. Oh, no. Not on our watch in the church of Jesus Christ. We expect the world to express self. But not the church. We express Jesus, his truth, his life. Now, the serpent was more subtle cunning, shrewd, and crafty than any beast of the field. Dolos. 
This is your Greek word for the day. I know I already gave you idiotes, but this is your bonus Greek. That was your bonus. This is your real Greek word for the day. Actually, it's dalos. It just looks like dolos, okay? Dalos. Craft, subtlety, guile. To lure, to catch with bait. That's the word associated with your enemy. He has dalos. He has guile. He has craft. He's subtle. And what is, subtle, what is subtlety? What is dalos? It's trying to bait you. It's trying to allure you. Subtlety is the key. If the enemy just comes up to you and baits you with, yeah, I'm just thinking if you committed adultery, life would go better for you. It's not that obvious. He baits you into such a situation because your moral framework would repel it at first instinct otherwise. So he baits you into compromise. The enemy's a trapper. He knows how to hunt for Christians. He's good at ensnaring people's feet. You must be good at building your life upon the word of God. So Dalos, here's how it's used in Mark 14. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by Dalos. Now, it says uh, craft or subtlety, I think, in the actual translation. But I put in Dalos, our Greek word. So the chief priests and scribes sought that they might take him. Who's him? Jesus. The chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders, those that have light to bring, but it was a false light, are seeking to take Jesus by dolos, by bait, by trapping him and put him to death. That's a description of Satan right there. They're after Jesus, the word of God, to put him to death. The sinister makeup of Dallas. So I'm going to give you sort of the ingredients of Dallas. An ounce of guile, a dollop of subtlety, and a pinch of craftiness. Guile. This is the definitions. It's compiled from like the 1828 Webster's Dictionary and a whole bunch of other online. It's really a fascinating com combination that I have here. But this is what it means. Craft, cunning, artifice. And now what I did is I made bold the words that have to do with artistry. To realize, have you realized that all these words are associated with artistry in our understanding? That's what's weird. Is there is an evil side, a deviant side to artistry. Lucifer is oftentimes considered that great musician, master musician in heaven. So he was an artist with great beauty. Yet he was corrupted in his wisdom because he longed for self-exaltation. Craft, cunning, artifice, duplicity, deceit. Guileful, cunning, crafty. Crafty should be uh, bold. Artful and wily. Subtlety. This is very interesting. Sly in design. It's a design. It's a pattern. It's a plan. It's a conspiracy. It's thought through. If you're subtle, that means you know what you're after. You can't be subtle if you're ignorant of what you're doing. You're subtle if you know what you're doing. You're sly in design. You're artful. Isn't that an interesting word? Artful. You ever heard of the artful dodger? Uh, was that Oliver Twist? Is that the one that had the artful dodger in it? The guy knew how to, I don't know what it was, steal bread. I don't know exactly what his end game was, but and not get caught. Well, the enemy wants to steal truth without getting caught. He wants to undermine the moorings of Christianity without it, anyone noticing that he did it. I am, I'm innocent. He's the artful dodger. He's artful. Cunning, so delicate or precise as to be difficult to analyze or describe. I don't know, I don't see what he did there, but he got away with something. This is what I've been dealing with with the postmodern church. What are they doing? 
I see them undermining scripture, but how are they doing it? I mean, this is one difficult study because it's subtle. Making use of clever and indirect methods to achieve something. Its origin in the Middle English means not easily understood. Craft, cunning, art, or skill, and in a bad sense, are applied to bad purposes. Artifice, guile, skill, or dexterity employed to affect purposes by deceit to play tricks. Crafty craftiness, cunning, artful, skillful in devising and pursuing a scheme by deceiving others or by taking advantage of their ignorance wily. You see that? Taking advantage of their ignorance. If the church of Jesus Christ is not built on the word of God, they're ignorant of the word of God. And as a result, the enemy can take advantage of us through craftiness. Sly, fraudulent, clever at achieving one's aims by indirect or deceitful methods. Craftily, this is, this is a good one. With craft, cunning, or guile, artfully, cunningly, with more art than honesty. When we have more art than truth, what are we? We're doing things craftily. Who does things craftily? The serpent. When we are attempting to emphasize art over truth, what are we doing? What are we mimicking? God? No. The serpent. The postmodern Christian. It's Christianity with more art than honesty. Or how about we say it this way? With more guile than truth. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame. This is Paul. Not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God with dolo'o, with guile, with subtlety. We do not handle the truth of God this way that we've been describing. That's what Paul says. All this that we've been studying, Paul goes out of his way to say, we do not do that. We do not mishandle the precious word of God with an artful, crafty, beguiling nature. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Who did no sin, neither was Dalos found in his mouth. Who, who's that talking about? Jesus. Who did no sin, and then what's emphasized? Neither was dolos, guile, deceit, craftiness, anything that would be more artful than truth. Only truth could be, a found, be found upon the lips of Jesus. Purposeful ambiguity. Sorry to give such a big word. If something's ambiguous, that means it's difficult to trace. It doesn't have clear form or design. It's like, what am I looking at? It's ambiguous. The church of today is being purposefully ambiguous. You know what Jesus is? Now you could say, what about his Proverbs? His Proverbs literally were a, a manifestation, a revelation unto the Jewish people that their eyes were closed and could not see it. Because guess what? You can read his Proverbs today with the Spirit of God and know exactly what he's talking about. I'm sorry, did I say Proverbs? His parables. When Jesus used parable, you could say, well, he was being ambiguous. Actually, he was speaking truth to a nation whose eyes were closed. They could not discern it because they didn't have the Spirit of God. What do you think he died to give? The lens to be able to see it. He was speaking truth. They could not hear it. It wasn't ambiguous. It wasn't a purposeful ambigu amb ambiguity. At the same time, Jesus does have a good sense of humor. Purposeful ambiguity. I have gone out of... This is... Okay, I better introduce you to a few characters here. Brian McLaren would be considered the father of the emergent movement. 
The emergent movement doesn't like to go by that name anymore because it had a lot of uh, stains and uh, problems with it. And so I, it's, it's just what we could call new Christianity. That's the term they usually use. It's Christianity that now works because they have thrown out the stale version of the past. What's funny is most of us in here would say, yeah, you know what? We need to emerge. We need to get away from whatever we've been doing in Christianity and have this thing still work, have this thing come back to its age of glory again. So a lot of us would agree. That's why there's bait involved in this. However, where he's taking us is not back to truth. He's taking us to a complete renovation and redefinition of everything that has always been true for 2,000 years to the church of Jesus Christ. And I mean it. This is one serpentine character. I have gone out of my way, says Brian McLaren, to be provocative, mischievous, and unclear. Reflecting my belief that clarity is sometimes overrated. And that shock, obscurity, playfulness, and intrigue, carefully articulated, often stimulates more thought than clarity. Hmm. Now, I, the reason I went through all that I went through was so that you could see these quotes a little more clearly. Because most of us, when we see these quotes, it's like, well, yeah, well, what's the big deal? He's just being artistic. But I want you to realize what kind of artistry this is. This is a beguiling artistry. And especially when you see where he's trying to take you. John S. Bohannon, who did a study on the emergent church, wrote this, and I thought it said it so well that I would just say it. Because one of the things I'm always saying is, the emergent church will never define their position. But they will challenge all the historic moorings, but then say, you know, like, for instance, they'll say, anyone, you know, the Buddhist, you're going to say he's not going to God? You know, when he dies, you're going to say the Muslim is not going to God? He's, he's a universalist. That means all roads lead to, to heaven, which is counter to the entire biblical framework. And yet, at the very end of his argument, he'll say, but don't get me wrong, I'm not a universalist. Wait a minute. Everything you said was that you were a universalist. So listen to this. He was studying the same thing. I even said this when Rob Bell's book came out, Love Wins, which is basically eradicating the concept of hell. You know, everyone goes to heaven, hell's empty. Is this kind of, I said, no, watch. He'll make it very clear that he's not a universalist. That's exactly what he did in the book, yet the whole book is universalism. John S. Bohannon says, pinpointing with any precision McLaren's position on doctrine has its challenges for two reasons. First, his beliefs are often communicated through fictional characters that embrace just enough agreement from both sides of a position that the reader is left wondering exactly where the author stands. He even warns against associating his personal position on a subject with that of the total viewpoint of any one of his characters. These fictional characters vacillating, going back and forth, between agreement and disagreement present a hallmark trait of his writing style. Second, McLaren strategically seems to place sentences in his writings that enable him to refute any critic that seeks to pinpoint his theological convictions. This method of communicating allows him to own a particular theological position while also maintaining his al an alliance with the opposing side of the argument. For McLaren, to be for one principle does not mean opposing it's opposite. This is chaos for the soul right here. It's, most people call it trying to nail jello to a wall. But it's artistic is what it is. It's entering into a conversation. It's being friendly with, with the ideas of Jesus. And it leads people over a cliff. Because he does have an agenda. And we're going to attempt to bring that out. This is hard. And one of the reasons this message preparation has been so difficult is because these guys slither around. You try and reach down and grab it, and they slither out of the room. It's like, wait a minute here. You're up to something, because everything you're saying is undermining the entire moorings of historic Christianity, yet you're not actually saying it in one sentence. 
I can't just quote you on that. I feel you on that. How do you, how do you take that to a court of law? A quick look at the effects of dolos upon the truth. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through when you take guile and artistry, that deviant artistry, and begin to apply it to the truth, and you exalt artistry above truth, how does it affect it? Let's just walk through this. How does it affect the Bible, first off? And what, what you're going to see is everything I'm going to go through is everything we're going to go through in the nine weeks of discipleship. It's the order. First, we start with the Word of God. If you don't have a foundation in the Word of God, you don't know what you're standing on. Your entire faith rests upon the Word of God because the Word of God reveals Jesus. It's the treasure map which leads us to the treasure. You remove the treasure map, good luck finding the... You move the treasure map, good luck finding the treasure. The Bible. There's serpentine questions. So that's the beguiling question, the subtle question. Is it really God's Word? This is what they're asking. I mean... I know God likes it. It's a good book that talks about godly things, but are we certain that it's God's word? McLaren says, yeah, never once in it does it say it's God's word. And you're like, huh, what, what? That's exactly right. He's casting question. Are you sure it isn't just the words of good-intentioned men? Are, are, are we really certain about this? This should bring you right back to the Garden of Eden. Big red flag starts going up. So this is Brian McLaren. Now, I cobbled this together. You'll see the footnotes down below. This is me attempting to get McLaren to say it because he's saying it in everything he's doing. He's undermining the integrity of the word of God, but he doesn't want to say it. So this is me cobbling it together. The Bible never calls itself the foundation. The Bible is more a question book than an answer book. The Bible seems to explore mystery, not clarify it. The facts are not as important as the feelings, and postmoderns tend to feel after him. We don't need these facts. Okay, this guy is cunning. He's literally undermining it as a foundation. He said, hey, it doesn't call itself the foundation. You want to make a bet? Who's Jesus? He's the foundation. He's the word of God. The word of God is the foundation. The chief cornerstone. This is beguiling, but you have to know the word of God to answer it. Brian McLaren also states, the more I learn from Jesus, the more I cringe when I read passages in Exodus or Joshua where the God of love and universal compassion to whom Jesus has introduced me, allegedly, allegedly, the reason I made that bold is I want you to let that sink in, allegedly commands what today we could call brutality, chauvinism, ethnic cleansing, or holocaust. What's he doing? He's casting doubt upon the scriptures. He said it right there. He just didn't say he didn't trust the scriptures. But what he's saying is allegedly commands. He cringes. I'm not cringing when I read that. That's interesting. I'm not cringing. I'm not looking at God as if he's brutal, chauvinistic, ethnic, an ethnic cleanser and creating a holocaust in the Old Testament. What's the difference here? He doesn't esteem the word of God. He puts in this situation, he's saying Jesus has introduced him to this God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament was Jesus. Amen. That is Jesus. It was the word of God that literally went before Joshua into the land. I had a whole teaching on that. The captain of the host is Jesus in the Old Testament. It's actually rather extraordinary. The word of God, by the way, is a character. He's the one that created the heavens and the earth. Read John 1. He's been around. He didn't just suddenly be created in John 1. Well, boom, we have him. He's always been there. He's <clears throat> God. 
I'll stand on that point, too. Okay, here's a member of Doug Paget's church. Doug Paget and I have gone back and forth. I did something online about the fact. I think I called it Doug Paget weirdness because he was teaching uh, Buddhist you know, meditation uh, uh, practices. I see the Bible changing, says one of his church members. This is in an award-winning video called Spiritual Revolution. I see the Bible changing. Oh, really? I don't see it as stagnant. And so for us as a community of Christians to say we need to believe this one thing and hold to it tightly and make sure it's never questioned, that's a real waste of energy with all the things we could be doing in the world. Truth. How does this affect truth? Because if you undermine the word of God, what happens to truth? What's your basis for truth? If you can't trust the word of God, where are you getting your truth from? It's what you feel. So here's what Brian McLaren says about it. The facts are not as important as the feelings. As po and postmoderns tend to feel after him. So what's truth now? It's what you feel, brother. You have become God to make your own reality. Thy word is truth. Quote, unquote, the word of God. Thy word is truth. Where's the truth? It's the word of God, not what you feel. I don't care what you feel. I care what the word of God says. So let's deal with the goodness of man. See, when you undermine the word of God, and you undermine where truth comes from, then how do we define reality around us? We now don't define reality around us by the word of God. We define it by what our social sensibilities are. And so when it comes to the goodness of man, you know that it doesn't come across very well if I go out into this world and tell people that they're a wretched sinner? Ah, that's so harsh and demeaning to humanity. There's serpentine question. Is it true that men are sinful? Is it, I mean, is it really true that they're sinful? Couldn't it be that we are only misguided and in need of loving acceptance? Is it not true that we possess within ourselves a beauty, a glory, a rightness, and a god I want you to brace yourself. What I'm about to read is going to deeply disturb you. Doug Paget says, We can say we believe that humanity is evil and depraved and that we enter the world this way, but I don't think this fits the Christian story, nor do many of us truly hold to it. Doug Paget says, Humankind is created as God's partners, not God's enemies. God didn't do that. Yeah, he didn't do it. That's why when sin entered and we became God's enemies, God had to seek a salvation, a rescue strategy for us so that we could be reconciled. But this is an undermining of everything that is needed at the cross. Everything. The cross is emptied of its power. And so is hell, by the way, uh, by these guys. It disables us. Uh, sin does a lot of damage to that partnership. It disables, but they've redefined what sin is. It disables, it discourages, it disturbs us, but it never destroys the bond that exists between God and humanity. Did you hear that statement? Sin doesn't destroy the bond between us and God. It's just a, you know, we have some faulty thinking here, and we're rude to our brother, you know, and we don't reach out to the whale that is dying off the shores of Japan. That's sin. But it doesn't distance us from God. And we could say, well, haven't you read your Bible, Doug? Oh, he has. He's redefined the Bible. But it never destroys the bond that exists between God and humanity. Humankind is inherently godly and offers God-inspired goodness. 
Tony Campolo, who has an entire university, one of the leading universities, well, I shouldn't say leading universities, not, to me it's not a leading university, amongst Christian development of thought today. We affirm our divinity by doing what is worthy of God's. Robert Schuller affirms our divinity, yet does not deny our humanity. Isn't that what the gospel is? Now, if you don't know what the word divinity is, it means godness. You know that you're God. We affirm that. You are God. You are as God. Do you remember what the Satan, Satan said in the garden? You can be as God's. There is a beguiling of the enemy, a bait, to say, no, no, you're not the wretched sinner that needs to be saved. You are as God. You are a co-partner with God in this great endeavor. It's not against God. It's just that you're rising up to understand your divinity. Heresy. Tony Campolo says, the hymn writer who taught us to sing Amazing Grace was all too ready to call himself a wretch, forgetting our divinity. Oh, that poor guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He didn't understand. He forgot his divinity. Eric Fromm, who I put a little note in here. doesn't really stand out, but you see it's sort of a pinkish color. Note, who, by the way, is a godless atheist and author of Ye Shall Be As God. That's the name of his book. And he doesn't, he doesn't even like God. And he's being quoted here by Tony Campolo. Eric Fromm, one of the most popular psychoanalysts of our time, recognized the diabolical social consequences that can come about when a person loses sight of his or her own divinity. The cross. Okay, so we emptied the Bible of its ability to be our foundation. We cause truth to be now what is felt. Then we redefine the goodness of man. If you're good and you're godly, guess what? You don't need a savior. Why would Jesus have to come and die? It's a very good question. So what happens to the cross? Their serpentine question, is a God of love really going to pour out wrath upon his own son? <laughs> don't you think we should try and make this whole cross affair a bit less bloody? Brian McLaren says this, and this is on the subject of penal substitutionary atonement, which is basically that Jesus was in our place, and therefore he took the penalty of sin fully upon himself and the wrath of God, the justice of God, was expressed and satiated and atoned for in him. Now, for most of us as Christians, it's sort of just a no-brainer. Not, not for Brian McLaren. This is a questionable issue. You see, he's undermined the word of God. See, you could say, well, how could you come to that conclusion, Brian? It says it so clearly in the Word of God. Well, he doesn't go to the Word of God as an authority. He goes to his feelings. So on the subject of penal substitutionary atonement, or Jesus taking our rightful penalty for sin and absorbing the wrath of God upon the cross, he says, that sounds like one more injustice in the cosmic equation. It sounds like divine child abuse, you know. He's going to call our Father in heaven a child abuser. Not on our watch. This next one, Steve Chalky, is the Brian McLaren of the United Kingdom. And so Steve Chalky is talking about the cross and the penal substitutionary atonement is, this is what he says, penal substitutionary atonement is cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. It is a theory rooted in violence and retributive notions of justice and is incompatible, at least as currently taught and understood, with an authentically Christian understanding of the character of God. This is what happened on the cross and what we are so ridiculously idiotic to believe is incompatible with the character of God. It's an expression of God's love. The fact that he's just is proved there. It's the most incredible manifold representation 
of the character of God. These are fighting words for us, Christians. They are literally undermining Jesus and him crucified. And no one touches that in the church. We expect the world to hate Christ, but the church is the guardian of truth, soundness of mind, sound doctrine, so that we can be built upon a rock and thrive. The position of self, okay? Suddenly you're a god. What happens to the cross? You know what the cross was there for? Well, we'll go into it in great detail. It wasn't just penal substitutionary atonement. It was the fact that Jesus was accomplishing something for you and taking you on a way to the Father. And so when you enter into him, you go to the cross with him and your old man, your flesh, that part of you that keeps holding you down in a sinful pattern is crucified. You are literally legally separated from that as a controlling element in your life. And when he's buried, when Jesus is buried, your old behavior is buried. This is what's called baptism. And then there is a newness of life in his resurrection. And that newness of life is your newness of life because you are in Christ. And then he goes and ascends to be with the Father and sits down at the right hand of the Father. The key is he is literally dethroning self within you. He is taking you out of the throne and so he can take his rightful place that he always used to have. Back before the fall, that was his position. And he's coming back to reclaim what is rightfully his, which is you. And self must be dethroned. However, what if you undermine the word of God? What if you undermine truth? What if you undermine the goodness of man and change it to be you are a God? What if you undermine the entire purpose of the cross? What happens to self? The serpentine question, did you know that you could be as God? By the way, this is happening in the church. Brian McLaren is one of the best-selling authors in Christianity today. The best-selling books in Christianity today are almost categorically across the board emergent books. Entire tables will be set up in Barnes and Noble and Borders called The New Christian. And they're all this thinking. All of it is this thinking. So I'm not talking about a little side project, you know, or some wacko is, you know, in his chemistry lab coming up with new thinking. This is the thinking that is permeating the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, we could call it the new church. The church has been redefined to think this way. You are now in the aberration environment where the things that I'm speaking are considered wacko, cuckoo, oppressive, repressive. Brian McLaren. I'm trying with, remember, this is under the position of self. I'm trying with Ken Wilber's help to make clear that I believe there is something above and beyond the current alternatives of modern fundamentalism, absolutism, and pluralistic relativism. You're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. The only reason I gave this quote, and the advanced students would understand this quote, is because of with the help of Ken Wilber. Ken Wilber is a Buddhist, a New Ager, who teaches something called I amness. I amness. I am God is what it claims. This is the highest form of blasphemy that we could ever cart into the church. It is the abomination of desolation. It is the antichrist to literally claim that you are God when Christ is God. This is serious stuff. And so the reason I say that is Brian McLaren is subtle. What's his end game? What is he after? With Ken Wilber's help. Hmm. Rob Bell in Velvet Elvis, 
For a mind-blowing introduction into emergent thinking and divine creativity, he advises his audience to spend three months at the feet of Ken Wilbur. The gospel, their serpentine question, is that really what Jesus came to accomplish? I mean, if you've undermined truth and you've undermined the cross, they have to come up with a new gospel. There's no gospel left. The good news is that there was never any bad news. Brian McLaren, this is what he says, and I have, I have three different little gospel takes. These are very difficult to get them to share the gospel because they never share the gospel. They never share anything that any of us in this room would consider the gospel, ever. And so what we have here is hard to find, but Brian McLaren says this in The Secret Message of Jesus. Let's suppose a TV news reporter walked up to Jesus and said, Jesus, we have 30 seconds before the commercial break. Can you tell us in a sentence or two what your message is about? What would he say? Well, here's what I'm going to say before I tell you what Brian McLaren would say he would say. This isn't what he would say. That's just my take, okay? <laughs> this is what he says Jesus might say. Everyone needs to rethink their lives as individuals, and we need to rethink our direction as a culture and imagine an unimagined future for our world. He might say, because the kingdom of God is here, you can count on this. Uh-huh, well, and how am I supposed to respond to that? What is that? Uh-huh, that's exactly right. It's artistic. It sounds good. It doesn't mean a hill of beans. There is no substance and there's no truth in that. Yeah, the kingdom of God is here. I could agree with that. It's not that I disagree with every single thing McLaren says. He's not saying the same thing. He's not talking about the same kingdom of God. He's not talking about the same Jesus. Not talking about the same Bible. His authority is not flowing from Jesus Christ. Okay, and then here we have in the secret message of Jesus, we have him say it, but you'll notice page 79 and page 134. This is a cobbling together of his gospel. Sort of hard. It's an invitation for all nations, races, classes, and religions to participate. Okay, let me just stop there. The gospel is an invitation, okay, for all nations, races, and classes. Now you're going to go, amen, amen. And religions. Wait, what? Wait a minute. Uh-huh, that's right. That's what he believes. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam. We're all sharing in this good news. It's the good news for all of us that we can band together and to participate in this network of dynamic, interactive relationship with God. This gospel or secret message of Jesus uncovered unites people on a peaceful journey to bring healing, love, justice, mercy, humility, reconciliation, and hope to the world. This is good-sounding stuff. This is his gospel. I want you to know if I start giving you the gospel, it's not going to sound quite like this. The kingdom of God, then, is a revolutionary countercultural movement proclaiming a ceaseless rebellion against the tyrannical trinity of money, sex, and power. Not sin. Money, sex, and power. These things that have been oppressive in our culture. Not the fact that you are at enmity with God. Money, sex, power. Yeah, those things are hindering us. But he totally eradicates and overrules the concept of sin. And breaking down of injustices such as racism, nationalism, consumerism, colonialism, and self-destructive ecosystems. The good news! Wait till you guys hear the good news this semester. I mean, it's so good that the word good stinks. It is so grand. Rob Bell is asked in an article if he had, I don't know, how many words is in a Twitter? Uh, is it like 140 or something like that? Did we figure that out the other day? 140? Is that what? Okay. So Rob Bell is 140 words. 
And he's asked, if he were going to Twitter the gospel, what would he say? Hmm, this would be fascinating. I would say, now remember what I said, the exaltation of art above truth? I would say that history is headed somewhere. And all of a sudden... The thousands of little ways in which you are tempted to believe that hope might actually be a legitimate response to the insanity of the world actually can be trusted. And the Christian story is that a tomb is empty. I agree. And a movement has actually begun that has been present in a sense all along in creation. And all those times when, you were, when your cynicism was, was at odds with an impulse within you said that this little thing might be about something bigger. Those tiny slivers may in fact be connected to something really, really big doesn't tell you what the big thing it's connected to is. He doesn't speak about Jesus. He doesn't speak about your lostness. He doesn't speak about hope in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus Christ. There is only one rescue strategy from the condition you're in, and that is Jesus Christ. And then there's only one way to live out this life God intended you to live, and that's to be in Jesus and to have Jesus in you, to take these hands, these feet, these lives, these eyes, these mouths, and make them his. To turn this world on its head and to reveal the Son of God afresh in this generation. What has happened to our gospel? The man Jesus. The Bible is undermined. The truth is forsaken for feeling. The goodness of man is wholly redefined. What has happened to the cross? It's useless now. It's actually a state, all it is to the emergence is a statement of God's love. He was showing us an example that when people hit you, you don't say anything back. Well, you know what? That's a part truth. That's not what the cross was all about, though. That's a piece of the cross. Yes, it's an expression of that, sure. But that's not the totality of the cross. So what happens when you undermine all these? What happens to Jesus in the whole thing? You see, if you mess with the word of God, what happens to the word of God made flesh? The serpentine question, is there really a necessity that we push the fact that he was supposedly born of a virgin? I mean, does it really matter? That's Rob Bell talking in Velvet Elvis. Does it really matter if we claim he was God in the flesh? Does it have to be? I mean, come on, guys. Does it have to be that we say he's divine? I mean, is that really the argument we want to die on here? Do we really need to be about all Jesus, 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 Jesus? Couldn't we just be about the Father, the Father God? That's an interesting question. Let's ponder that. No, no, no. Christians, the word of God is our template and every single sentence in it is a big road sign that points to one thing, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Does it really matter if we claim he was God in the flesh? Does it seem a bit preposterous to you that we have to believe he supposedly rose from the dead to be included in the community of those who call themselves Christians? I mean, some of us are struggling with thinking that this resurrection is a bona fide thing. Do we really have to believe that? You take the resurrection of Jesus out of the mix, you're taking the divinity of Jesus out of the mix. You take the divinity of Jesus out of the mix, you no longer have yourself a savior because man cannot save himself. You need God to save you. You do not tamper with the truth and otherwise you're tampering with the Son of God who gave up his life. This is precious blood that was, that was spent. Precious And we give up our blood to protect this message. Doug Padgett says, I know he's pondering. He was asked on the question of, well, if you've undermined the cross, what happens to Jesus? This is his response. I know that rethinking the nature of God, the state of humanity, the essence of sin, leads to rethinking Jesus. He knows it. 
It leads to rethinking Jesus. Doug Padgett says the church today is probably preaching too much Jesus at the expense of the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's what we're all complaining about. We're preaching too much Jesus. Okay, what is the end result? When the word of God is in the word when the word of God in textual form, the Bible, is diminished, it leads to a diminishment of the word of God in person, Jesus Christ. When you undermine the word of God in text, you undermine the word of God in person. The two go hand in glove. And what we see is that exact process is taking place. Our Jesus is being undermined in the church of Jesus Christ. How in the world could that be happening? We have a serpent in our midst. We have a beguiling idea that has taken hold of the thoughts and hearts and minds of the Christians of today. We've bought it. We fell for the bait. It's a false illumination. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. This isn't a frontal attack. This is a subtle attack, and we must be aware of it. Three elements of heavenly artistry. So let's start turning this into a message that brings a big smile to our face. I don't like just talking about the junk. I want to talk about Jesus. The three elements of heavenly artistry. So if we are going to be artists filled with the Spirit of God to literally showcase the glory of God in and through our lives, that gets me excited. Let's get rid of this deviant stuff. And let's do it God's way. Three elements of heavenly artistry. Element one, beauty. Now we could say he had no form or comeliness that we would desire him. It's like, well, he seems like a funny place to go for beauty then. He's the most beautiful of all beautifuls. He's God. He's the creator. Just because this world doesn't see him as beauty doesn't mean he's not beauty to us. And what are we expressing? That beauty. Oh, that doesn't sound like it's going to help my art sell. That doesn't matter. Your art is for the glory of King Jesus, not to make money. Well, what were you thinking? This isn't some industry. Well, I was thinking about being a Christian musician. I mean, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm not doing it in such a way where the world would be attracted to it, my CD won't sell. What were you doing it for again? What are you here for? To sell a CD or to bring glory to Jesus Christ? It's a fascinating question. But beauty, beauty is element number one. It must be woven into our art. God is the author of beauty. God never makes junk, and neither should the Christian. And God does everything with excellence, order, and beauty, and so ought his children. Listen to this line, though. But our God is not averse, it means against, making things the world deems foolish. He will. His beauty isn't considered beauty by this world, but it's beauty. It's excellent. It's perfectly done. You know that Jesus was the most perfect? He was the most perfect enunciation. Of God. He was the perfect revelation of the Father, and the world did not see beauty in him. Doesn't mean it wasn't beauty. See, God is willing to make his beauty foolish. He doesn't care. He's not trying to appease the world. He's bringing a revelation of himself into this world. And those that love light will love him, those that love darkness will crucify him. Same with your art. Element number two glory. Everything that is truly lovely is lovely because it reveals the glory of God. Now, you see, the world has a version of this. But everything that is truly lovely in heavenly eyes to the saints of God, when it arrives in heaven, it could literally stand and be art in heaven throughout all of eternity. What could stand that test? It's something that is lovely because it reveals the glory of God. 
The Christian expresses their artistry for the glory of King Jesus alone and not ever for the carnal expression and glorification of self. Element three, purity. Oftentimes, most people could call this cheesiness. That's the great risk of being a Christian artist. You see, if we are marked by purity instead of guile, if we are marked by purity instead of that artistic hipness, that angsty smolder, and if we actually just get on the front of our CD album and go, <laughs> we're just innocent, childlike replicas. That's all we want to be. Hey, guys, I love Jesus. Would you like to hear a message? I'd like to share with you my love for Jesus Christ. And everyone's like all awkward. This guy has no style. And guess what? All of us that love Jesus would esteem it. Like, I like that. I like that guy. He's just, he's just, I don't know. We're like, like Jesus? Yeah, yeah. There's no guile in Jesus. There's no guile found in his mouth. He was without sin. He didn't take on the hue of this world to reach it. He didn't take on the sinful disposition. He didn't take on the craftiness, the wiliness, the guile to try and worm his way into this culture. He stood up and spoke what the Father was speaking. And they killed him for it. And we love him for it. Everything we esteem is everything that we're talking about here. However, to follow Jesus means we become that as well. Element three, purity. Purity of motive and purity of expression is a hallmark of everything born of the Spirit of God. God never bears the manner, center, pattern of the world, but is holy, holy, holy. The Christian is without guile, subtlety, craft, and deceit in their artistry. They wield the power of artistry only for the clarification of God's rock-like truth and never to make it fuzzy or indiscernible. We must brave the foolish path. That's what this is a commission for. It's saying, hey guys, this is for King Jesus. This isn't so that we will be liked, so that we'll be popular, so that we'll be wealthy. That's not why we serve Jesus. We serve Jesus for Jesus. We serve Jesus because he's worthy. We give our lives to Jesus because he's our king. And is not the king, the lamb that was slain, worthy to receive the reward of his suffering? The answer is yes. Take me, Lord Jesus. And then my commission to you is give yourself to Jesus. Not to follow me. Not to band around me, make me feel good. Our goal is Jesus. Not men. Not the talents of men. Not the abilities of men. Jesus, if any Christian has a talent, after we encounter them, what we're thinking of is Jesus and more of Jesus, not of their talent. A talent effectively used for Jesus reveals Jesus. The Spirit of God came into Bezalel and Ahileab. And what was it? The Spirit of God built the temple, built Jesus. That's what Jesus is. He's the temple. And that's what they were doing. They were furnishing the life of Christ. And who did it? The Spirit of God. The same Spirit that lives in you. We must brave the foolish path. So the danger of the artistic haven. When artistry becomes the primary objective in the Christian life, in other words, to experience God in a movie, music, poetry, a certain location, a specific atmosphere, a defined community then truth takes a lesser position than the artistic haven. When the artistic haven becomes the pursuit rather than Jesus, then the erosion of truth is now justified under the pretense of artistic license. Art is of higher value than truth. So let's contrast that with the power of the Christ haven. It's interesting because my family would always go to this retreat center when I was growing up called Christ Haven. 
And so when I was writing this, I felt sort of awkward calling it that. Uh, but it's still, it's the contrast, the Christ haven. We go into Christ. We don't have to go into a coffee shop to find God. We go into Christ to find God. That's novel. We go into Christ to find God, and you could do that anywhere. Isn't that exciting? However, by the way, I love good coffee shops, okay? You know that I love this atmosphere, and I love great views? I love being on water. I love being in the mountains. It's not the opposite. God created those things, and you can delight in those things. But to find the life, the beauty, the glory of God, and the intimacy with God, you need to be in Christ as a haven, not in some artistic triviality. When Jesus becomes the primary objective in the Christian life, in other words, to live with Jesus, know Jesus, be found in Jesus, be filled with Jesus, honor Jesus, and bring glory to Jesus, then truth takes a higher position than self-interest, self-expression, self-comfort. When the Christ haven becomes the pursuit rather than artistry, hipness, and self, then the soul is set free. Joy flows unabated. I'm telling you, we leap for joy around here. It is so good. Joy flows unabated. Peace passes all understanding. And love now has a proper channel through which to work. Truth is of higher value than art. And this is the perfect beauty in heaven's eyes. Jesus above all things. Jesus is the truth. We submit to that even if it looks corny, even if it comes across as foolish. He must be exalted. He must be lifted up. That is our mission. That is our motive. That is our call. Not to be hip, but to lift up Jesus. Paul's singular focus. Let's get right down to it. Philippians 3. Yes, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For all whom have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness. We could say this in this context, not claiming his own divinity. Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. The five things. That I may win Christ. That I may be found in him. That I may know him. That I may know the power of his resurrection. That I may know the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. That's what we're about. The message that he came to give was Jesus and him crucified. We do not mess with that message. We uphold it. And we give our lives to make it central in and amongst ourselves as a body. We have every conceivable denominational slant and bias in this room. And what do we agree on? Jesus and him crucified. This is about him. And how do we know about him? How do we define the Jesus we're talking about? In the word of God. The word of God is clear. It's not some mysterious book that has no clarity to it and it's ambiguous and it's fuzzy. It's clear. It's rock. It's defined. God knows what he's saying and he knows we can understand it in and through his spirit's help. And we as the body of Christ can once again regain that strong position, feet planted on rock.
All right, let's pray. Oh, Father, take this long message and somehow make it a very simple point to our souls. Somehow take it and make it work within your body. Awaken us and alert us to the centrality of Jesus Christ, the importance of the word of God, and build us firmly upon that rock. It's for the glory, the honor, the praise, the fame, the renown of our great Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.